0: Alex Epstein.
1: Welcome to Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. Today we're going to look at some of the most interesting stories from the year that just passed, 2011, uh, and also what are going to be the biggest stories in 2012. It's an election year, many big things going on on the global warming policy front, the fracking front the Keystone Pipeline front and other issues, and it's good to have a broad perspective on the year ahead so we know both, you know, those of us who are professionals in the field and those of us who are just followers or activists, what are the most important priorities to focus on. So joining us today to break down these issues is going to be Dr. Marlo Lewis. Now, Dr. Lewis is a senior fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute uh, focusing on energy policy and other public policy issues. Now, Marlow's got really interesting perspective. He has actually a PhD in government uh, from Harvard. He's got a background in political philosophy. He's worked in government, and he's also worked in the think tank world, in the energy world for a long time. So he's got a a wide variety of experiences, which gives him a a really good uh, ability to have an overview of what's going on in the industry and what's ahead. So want to know what happened in 2011 that you might not have known? Want to know what's going to happen this year? Stick with us, and we'll be back with Marlo Lewis on the other side.
0: Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.
1: Joining us to talk about the year behind us and the year ahead in energy is Dr. Marlo Lewis, a senior fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Marlo, welcome to the program.
0: Alex, I am delighted to be with you today.
1: Delighted to have you. Let's take a look first at... 2011. You've written a lot, um, particularly at globalwarming.org, uh, about various policy issues. I know you've written about Solyndra, global warming legislation. What do you th- see as the three biggest stories or the three stories of the last year that most interest you?
0: Well, one of the, one of the stories that, that most interests me is January 2nd, 2011. In other words. Uh, one year and one day ago, was when EPA began to regulate greenhouse gases under the Clean Air Act. That's when EPA's greenhouse gas emission standards for motor vehicles took effect. And according to EPA's reading of the Clean Air Act, that's when EPA became under a self-imposed legal obligation to regulate greenhouse gases from large stationary sources. <clears throat> and, of course, this was just the the opening volleys of a, of a protracted uh, campaign of greenhouse gas regulation uh, that EPA is uh, prosecuting, uh, implementing. And I see this as a, a kind of watershed event uh, for energy policy uh, because it, it actually rises to a level of constitutional significance. And by that, I mean this. In 2010, only a year ago, Congress rejected legislation that would have given EPA explicit authority to regulate greenhouse gases. That was the Waxman-Markey cap and trade bill, also known as the American Clean Energy and Security Act. And Congress rejected uh, that bill when the, when the Senate simply declined to even bring it to a vote. And that was in spite of a 15 year, roughly a 15 year and several hundred million dollar campaign to sell Congress and the public on global warming alarm, and also to sell Congress and the public on cap and trade as the solution to, uh, to our climate concerns. And one of the selling points, interestingly, of the, of the Waxman-Markey bill was that it would preempt EPA regulation of greenhouse gases under several Clean Air Act programs. So the, the notion that EPA somehow had this authority to regulate greenhouse gases from the Clean Air Act which went back which was enacted in 1970 and that was at least a decade before global warming ever became a public concern is just ludicrous what we have today is a situation in which EPA is effectively legislating climate policy for the country without a plausible legislative mandate and so this i think is is a is a serious a threat to our system of separated powers and democratic accountability. Bureaucrats are essentially making national policy and yet voters have no recourse at the ballot box. They can neither reward nor punish bureaucrats for making good or bad policy decisions. And as I said, we're just at the front end of this agenda. There was a a court case, a Supreme Court case last year uh, um, American Electric Power versus Connecticut, in which the Supreme Court uh, rejected an attempt by Connecticut and other states to uh, establish greenhouse gas emission controls under federal common law. The reason why I mention this is that the Obama Justice Department, uh, in its in its uh, brief on behalf of the utilities and against the states that were trying to regulate greenhouse gases under common law nuisance provisions, one of its arguments is, well, the Clean Air Act comprehensively regulates greenhouse gases and therefore displaces federal common law. And one of the ways in which it does this is that it it has a program called National Ambient Air Quality Standards. And those can be used to regulate greenhouse gases. There has been litigate, there has been a petition for, for more than a year now from environmental groups for EPA to do just that, to set national ambient air quality standards for greenhouse gases. Here we have the Justice Department of the Obama administration saying, yeah, this is a good approach. And what this would require if it actually goes forward would be setting National ambient air quality standards at levels below current atmospheric concentrations, um, and the problem with that is that we couldn't come into attainment with uh, with such standards, even if we deindustrialized America. So what I'm suggesting here is that what we have is a regulatory Pandora's box with, uh, in principle, no limit to the uh, economic sacrifices that Americans might be asked to make or that energy consumers might be required to bear, Um, if if the logic of the Clean Air Act is allowed to proceed to its ultimate conclusion with respect to greenhouse gases.
1: Yeah, I think the last point is, is worth stressing because in the debate, I mean, there, there are a lot of technical issues and, and they're important to understand, particularly for, for people who are in the fray. But just from a very broad perspective, we're talking about, um, giving the government unlimited power to restrict the fuel of life as we
0: know it. That's absolutely right because here for example one of the, the petition that EPA has has been sitting on now for over a year says you've got to establish a national ambient air quality standard for carbon dioxide at 350 parts per million it's now the atmosphere now has about 400 parts per million even if we had a global depression lasting decades that's reduced global economic output to say 1970 levels and emissions to 1970 levels, greenhouse gas or carbon dioxide concentrations would still continue to increase. So what it would take to comply with a national ambient air quality standard for carbon dioxide at 350 parts per million would have to be more severe than a global depression reducing, uh, na- world economic output to 1970 levels. And, you know, we have several billion more people living today than we did in 1970. So this is, this is something that could actually, you know, never be implemented, but the attempt to do so would, would, uh, would, would could have just disastrous economic consequences and, of course, um, put the government in, in a position to restrict just about to restrict and regulate everything that is made, everything that is moved, you know, um, anything that is uh, shared through networks. I mean, it's it's just I mean, it, it's about as close to policy insanity as one could imagine.
1: And if one is one has a belief or a desire that the state control everything, it's a dream policy because what better action to control than breathing or the breathing of industry, in effect?
0: Um, That's right. It's what Lenin would call controlling the commanding heights of the economy.
1: Definitely. Issue number two from last year.
0: Okay, issue number two. Believe it or not, even though it's not very big in itself, and not and certainly not in the scheme of things, it it, it is a it is a hopeful augury for the future, and that is Congress finally let this thirty-year-old turkey known as the or turkeys known as the volumetric ethanol uh, excise tax and the uh, the ethanol import tariff expire. And the reason why I think this is a big story is because many, many attempts have been made over the years to to reduce uh, the the uh, the ethanol tax credit. And those have always been shut down because the corn lobby is just so strong. It's one reason why the, the one nickname for the corn lobby is King Corn. And there were a lot of very savvy people who told me only a year ago, this is a quixotic endeavor. It will never happen. The corn growers always win. The ethanol lobby always wins. And lo and behold, this year, because of a variety of factors that all came together, these ridiculous subsidies to the ethanol industry died. They died. They died. They were allowed to... uh, reach their natural, statutorily appointed end, they weren't renewed. Those factors were the following. First of all, it turned out that even though the ethanol, the biofuel subsidy, uh, has been sold as good for farmers, it was really only good for corn farmers. It wasn't good for turkey farmers, it wasn't good for hog farmers or for cattle ranchers, uh, and, and what it did was it raised the price of, of these, of these other commodities, and these other commodities have to compete in a global marketplace. So you actually had a significant portion of the farm lobby oppose it. Uh, the another thing is that you had uh, that this amazing left-right coalition that I was, pr- I was very uh, privileged to be a part of. Uh, the Competitive Enterprise Institute, my organization, partnered with organizations like. Kyoto, USA, if you can believe it, because a lot of the environmental groups decided that corn ethanol really uh, increases greenhouse gas emissions on net and raises food prices, so that it harms hungry people uh, in in uh, developing countries. And so the, the leader in the among the environmental groups was Friends of the Earth, and uh, and they brought all kinds of environmental groups on board. And um, I I played a small role as a kind of the free market outreach person in the coalition, helping to get other free market and limited government groups involved. And we found legislative champions like Jeff Flake in the house and Tom Coburn in the Senate. And so this policy privilege for ethanol, which many people thought would would go on forever, um, Actually came to a, to a to a quiet burial at the end of the year, and the reason why I think that may be significant is that this coalition, which is now energized and uh, all pumped up about this victory, now wants to move on to the to the to the big kahuna of the ethanol policy privilege, which is the mandate. As I, I'm sure you know, Alex, in uh, in 2005 and 2007, Congress foolishly uh, enacted Soviet-style production quota for biofuel, which they termed the Renewable Fuel Standard. And so, by 2022, we have to have 36 billion gallons of of biofuel in our in our fuel supply, whether people want to buy the stuff or not, whether anyone really wants to make it or not, um, and uh, and that was considered a kind of sacred cow uh, among the environmental groups even, even a year or two ago. They were unwilling to touch it, but now they're willing to go after this as well. And so uh, what I see here is the potential for a real rollback of command and control, mm-hmm. regulatory approaches to energy, and uh, a reopening of, uh, of, of the fuel market to the forces of competition and consumer choice.
1: So I'm, I'm interested in this because many of the people you're talking about as allies on this particular issue, in my view, advocate things that are worse than the, although the ethanol mandate in particular is, is very, very bad. But a- ethanol subsidies are bad. What they're trying to mandate on the electricity front in terms of renewable energy standards, which are basically forcing us to use... Very expensive, very unreliable sources of energy as the foundation of our electrical grid. Those are, those are catastrophic. And these, these groups seem to be saying, well, ethanol might not be the best way to get to a CO2 emission free world. Uh, these other ones are, but these other ones would be disastrous too. So I'm curious how, how, what it means for them to be energized, because I'd be afraid that their energy means less energy.
0: Well, uh, it's, it's true. I mean, we, when you work in coalition with people, um, you don't, you couldn't do it if you, if you decided that you'd only work with someone who embraced your entire agenda, or you couldn't even do it if, if, um, if you insisted that they, uh, they, uh, not only share your objective, but for the same reasons that you do, okay? Well,
1: okay, that, that. So, I, mean, that I mean, this is a kind of, right. I mean, this is a really interesting issue in general of co- when it's constructive to form. Right. Co- These but are so people who are avowedly against coal, right. so natural case, gas, oil.
0: Yeah, we, we we worked together only on this issue with full knowledge of the fact that we are opposed to just about, on, on just about all the other energy issues, like, for example, the same Person at uh, the same Friends of the Earth that you know was invaluable in leading this coalition um, is is one of the principal opponents of the Keystone Pipeline, which of course uh, I, I I am a fervent supporter of. Um, so I I don't think though this to, to answer your question Alex I don't think this the 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 moral energy if you will that we all got out of this victory will translate into any additional energy for them on other issues. It will only put more gas in their tank, if you will, to go after the ethanol mandate. I don't see any I don't see any transfer effect uh, to to other energy issues, really. Well, um, that's,
1: that's definitely that's definitely good news. We actually have to go on to, to issue number three because. OK, let's too much to to talk right, about with all of these.
0: Yeah, well. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, there are so many issues. I think you're quite right to, to, to say that Solyndra was one of the one of the big issues of, of 2011. But um, I'll just I'll just mention another one that I think because I because it's so positive. I just want to I just want to touch on it. And I know that you've you've uh, done a lot of research on this. And that is the the fracking and the, the great revolution in uh, in natural gas production in this country. I mean, this this is is such an object lesson in the in in the fact that uh, the ultimate resource, as Julian Simon called it, which is the human intellect working uh, with the master resource, which is energy. Um, can create a world of, of boundless possibilities. You know, just a few years ago, people thought and the experts thought that our natural gas reserves were just on a steadily declining path and natural gas would become more and more expensive and we would have to import more and more and pretty soon we'd be importing about a hundred billion dollars worth of, of natural gas a year. And in just a few years, this whole picture is turned around because of horizontal drilling and hydraulic fracturing. And the, the, this is not only great in terms of U.S. energy security and, um, and the abundance of energy supply, but the economic benefits are just off the charts. I just was uh, looking at a study by the Perryman Group um, of uh, called a decade of drilling, which examines the economic benefits um, of to the uh, Dallas-Fort Worth metroplex area from uh, hydraulic fracturing of the Barnett Shale area. Okay, and and what it's meant for the local local and regional economy, for uh, for the local and re- uh, regional tax base, and so on. And it's just astounding. I mean, in just a decade. Hydraulic fracturing has been responsible for about $65 billion in economic output in the region, um, well over 100,000 new jobs. In 2011 alone, about $11 billion in annual output, uh, something like... What is it? 5.3 billion dollars in tax receipts for local governments plus 5.8 billion in tax receipts for Texas. I mean, this is at a this is in a time, as you know, as everyone knows who's listening, uh, of of uh, high unemployment, of economic stagnation and budget deficits, you know, as far as the eye can see. So, energy and energy production are one of the great profit setters going in the economy today where government allows it to happen it creates jobs and generates wealth and uh, you you can also see this of course in um where hydraulic fracturing has been applied to oil in the bakken shale uh in uh in north dakota where you have the 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 lowest unemployment rate in the country 3.5 percent and the state also has a one billion dollar budget surplus, and uh, or if you look at Pennsylvania, I mean, in Pennsylvania in the Marcellus Shale, where 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 we've had all of this natural gas development, uh, you see utility bills being cut in half, electric electric rates going down, uh, hundreds of companies moving in, um, you know, to uh, to to uh to lay pipe and to provide equipment and you know and then restaurants opening up for you know to, to service workers and it's it's just it's a virtuous circle of economic activity uh that um is is really great news for the new year and I I think um you know even though this has been going on now for about a decade the 2011 was when this uh was when I think public opinion finally recognized that, uh, hydraulic fracturing and natural gas was a, a, a potential game changer, not just for, uh, the U S energy picture, but for our economic situation.
1: Yeah, I, I have the same story as for whatever it's worth is my number one. I think, I think it's, it's, it's fantastic for all of the reasons you mentioned. I am incredibly grateful that, um, as I'm incredibly grateful that, despite all the government control that exists in our country, that these really ingenious, hardworking people managed to develop uh, this incredible you know all of these incredible technologies and that they've been free to develop those areas to very large extents. and it's just it's so foundational because the more and cheaper energy you have, the more productive every single other industry has, and the more productive and prosperous. Everyone is. So I, I'm curious though, for 2012 is one of your stories, the, the battle over that, because we see from celebrities to to just local activists, there's an enormous, enormous opposition uh, to the shale revolution on very spurious grounds of, oh, it contaminated this groundwater and things like that. But it's, it's a really growing opposition, which given the magnitude of what's at stake is, is ominous.
0: Yes, I. It, it is ominous, and <clears throat> it, it certainly deserves to rank up there in my, you know, top three for 2012. Um, I guess for some re- I guess because 2012 is an elect is an election year. Um, uh, I decided that my top three, uh issues were going to be oil oil and oil (laughs) all right let's let's hear all three okay but but i mean as you say i mean part of that is um is you know hydraulic fracturing of tight oil and so it, it really is all the same issue uh as as the hydraulic fracturing of natural gas and yeah i mean i completely agree with you um uh the the film Gasland is just a crock from top to bottom. And um, I, there, there was a, um, I'm, I'm, let's see, where did I read this? I just read it recently, but it was just a complete debunking, you know, uh, uh, almost line by line of everything in that film. Um, yeah. So, so I, I agree with you. There's, the, there is going to be a huge conflict over that. But I think the environmentalists have made the Keystone Pipeline an even more um, uh, salient flashpoint in 2012. The r- one reason why I think that oil I- I- in three ways is going to be the big story is, is that it is, an ele- it is a presidential election year. Obama in 2008 got elected in part because he feigned some sympathy for drill, baby drill. And I really think that now that we have this, these, these very bold Republicans in the House, these issues, are these oil-related issues, are going to be pushed to the fore. Uh, I mean, for one thing, you know, Congress, uh, Congress did pass. Uh, this um, you know payroll tax extension bill that requires Obama to make a decision on the key ro- the Keystone pipeline. That's the pipeline that will the 1,700 mile roughly extension that will bring uh, tar sands oil from um, from Canada, but also also uh, shale oil from uh, from uh, the Bakken play uh, down to the um, refining hub at our, in our Gulf Coast and the environmentalists have made this have made blocking this pipeline uh, their cause celebre. and uh, I, I it's really uh, hard for I think reasonable people to understand the animus against this um, because what it will do is is uh, increase our self-reliance, on north american energy from a, you know a friendly stable democratic neighbor to the north uh, and much of the development there being done by us companies and or, or, or and many of the much of the equipment being manufactured here in the united states i mean this this is exactly what people who allege that they are cons- or claim to be concerned about energy security should want it will also be a huge uh, instant um, boost to employment in the construction industry. And and, and now we hear silly, just completely silly uh, talking points from the opponents that, oh, these are just temporary jobs. Well, all construction jobs, by definition, are temporary jobs. And I thought the whole point of the stimulus or one big point of Obama's stimulus program was to was to uh, incentivize what he called shovel ready projects. Well, what are shovel ready projects? Those are construction jobs. All right, so I've seen all kinds of estimates, 13,000, 20,000, but however many, it would be thousands of construction jobs in, in in an industry, the construction industry, which is the hardest hit in the United States today in this recession. Uh, That's always the case. Whenever there is a recession, the biggest fall off in employment is in construction. So this is good for that reason. And and uh, so I I, the only the only reason I can see I I can see a sort of a, a, a short term political calculation on their part. They they think they need some kind of big victory. Um, just to stay relevant politically because they lost on cap and trade. They lost on a, a successor treated to the Kyoto Protocol. Uh, Obama has had to retreat on the ozone, the ozone national ambient air quality standard. So this, I, so, so, so I think they're kind of grasping at a straw here for a political victory. And they hope that if they block this, it will prove that they're still a force to be reckoned with. But beyond that, these are people who simply hate oil and oil companies. And it's a completely irrational hatred. Uh, one of the, one of the uh, I think, most uh, insightful things I've seen, comments I've seen on this was from, of all people, Stephen Colbert on the Colbert Report. He had Bill McKibben, the leader of the Washington, D.C.-based uh, protest against the Keystone Pipeline on his program, And McKibben started to talk about how there was more flooding in Vermont. And of course he blamed that on global warming and, and so he somehow linked that to the Keystone pipeline. And so Colbert said, Oh, you're from Vermont. Well, how did you come down here? Did you ride a bicycle? And McKibben said nothing. He said, did you ride ox cart or do you have a vehicle that runs on hypocrisy? I mean, That's that's that says it all. You know, Al Gore has the biggest carbon footprint, you know, of just about anyone in the world. And uh, so why is that? Why why is it that a person as powerful as Al Gore and as rich as Al Gore burns so much fossil fuel because there's no feasible alternative? Al Gore can't can't. Take care of all that important, you know, planetary business, uh, the planetary saving mission that he thinks he's on by ox cart or bicycle, nor does he have a private jet or a limousine that runs on hypocrisy, you know, or it, you know, it runs on gasoline. So this, this hatred of oil is just irrational. And of course, they'll, the environmentalists will say, well, it might leak. Well, if that's a reason not to have an oil pipeline, then, then we shouldn't have any oil pipelines. And since tankers can also leak, we shouldn't have any commerce in oil. And if we didn't have that, we'd all be stuck in medieval squalor. And the average lifespan would be about 30 years old, and we'd all be reading by candlelight, you know, if we read it all. I mean, it's it's just the most ridiculous kind of Ludditism. And uh, so but so it's very important, though, that we beat this um, this year and that we and that we do so in the context of a presidential election. And so uh, the Keystone Pipeline, I would say, is going to be one of my big stories. It has to be because by law, President Obama now has to make a decision which he wanted to punt. You know, he 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 uh, he tried to postpone this until 2013 so that he wouldn't have to either alienate his environmental base by approving the pipeline or, or alienate his labor base by disapproving the pipeline. So now he's stuck. Now it's going to be a campaign issue. And and if he votes wrong if he decides wrong on this and and uh, either either postpones a decision again on the pipeline somehow or vetoes it. Then I think the GOP, one of their, then probably the biggest campaign issue of 2012 will be that Obama puts environmental, the interests of environmental extremists ahead of American energy security and job creation. So that's why I, that's why I put Keystone way up there. And, um, and just in general, um, I think drill baby drill is going to play in the election because number one, it was, it was popular even back in 2008. And since then, the Republican House has passed three bills that basically tell the Obama administration, you've got to open up um, more of the offshore uh, for drilling. So uh, there was a uh, this this probably is not a household word, but there was the reversing President Obama's offshore moratorium act, which passed <laughs> House 243 to 179 in May. Also in May, there was the restarting American offshore leasing now act, which passed the House 266 to 149 and the putting the Gulf back to work act. That was to repeal the informal permatorium of the Obama administration in the wake of the uh, official moratorium that uh, after the, the uh, BP blowout, that passed 263 to 163. So the Republicans you know are going to make this an issue um, in, in uh, 2012. And the other one which we already touched on, I think, is the tight oil um, uh, production, uh, in you know in the in the Bakken shale in the Eagle Ford shale, I, I think it's possible that this just could become newsworthy um, in, in 2012 the way natural gas has become in 2011 because it really is an amazing story uh, that uh, you know in in two in the year 2000. We were only producing about 2,000 barrels a day from this tight oil, and now we're up to a million barrels a day. And according to the National Petroleum Council study that just came up, came out, we could be up to you know three million barrels a day uh, within a decade. And so this really kind of reverses the picture that we are over. We are so far over the the the, the hump, the uh, uh, Hubert's hump you know, the peak oil theory that that that, you know, it's that um, the American oil picture is simply bleak. That the fact is we're producing, you know, more oil now than we have, uh, I think, since the since the 80s. And it's just going to it's just going to continue to increase. And that combined with the uh, with the tar sands oil from Canada under the most optimistic scenario, could could equal basically all the oil that we consume today. Of course, we'll be consuming more then, so we'll still need to import some from outside of North America, even under an optimistic scenario. But nonetheless, I mean, we are producing, America today is producing 60% of its oil, whereas in, in 2000, I mean, excuse me, is producing um, 50, 54% roughly of all the oil uh, whereas in, uh, uh in, uh, 2005, you know, we were only producing about 40%. So we're on an uptick here and it's a very hopeful story and, um, and it's all because of, of, of these, uh, oil form or oil formations, you know, in tight rock, which technologically, um, could not be, could not be, uh, developed economically only only a few years ago. So it's, for whatever reason, I,
1: I don't think I, I took seriously enough just in thinking about um, this year that it is an election year, uh, perhaps because I'm on the West Coast, so I don't. it's not yeah. in my face uh, right. every single day. But what, what struck me when you were talking about all those different aspects of oil is that it's going to be really interesting to see what kind of narratives both sides use in the upcoming debate, so if you take if you take the issue of Keystone uh, from from Canada, the the real narrative I see on the opposite side is the dirty oil narrative or the dirty energy narrative, and it's do we want a country that uses dirty energy or do we want to be the kind of country that uses clean energy? And this viewed as a watershed moment in battle. And sure, they lost cap and trade, so they're they're upset about that. But it's well, you know, we need to draw a line at this pipeline right here. Uh, and stop it. And that has a certain appeal, because there's this aspirational quality of clean energy and green energy, which is a bit tarnished in people's minds because of various debacles and because it hasn't taken off the way that was was promised. But I mean, my own interest in it is, is can our side really make an aspirational case the other way? That is, keystone Bakken in North Dakota, Marcellus in Pennsylvania. These are all amazing instances of human beings using their minds to turn otherwise useless raw materials into amazing life-promoting materials, and that's the essence of life. And that whatever byproducts there are, those are tiny in comparison to the amazing amount of life-giving energy uh, that we get. And that's how we should define it. That's how we should look at it. And things like jobs flow out from that. But the real thing is that the the energy and the getting of it is, is an amazingly positive thing.
0: I absolutely agree. And and I, I commend you also, Alex, because I don't think anyone uh, writing on these issues today or speaking about them uh, is as eloquent as you are in in capturing um, um, this, this larger human story uh, in the, uh, in the transformation of the, as Locke would put it, the otherwise almost worthless materials, you know, into the stuff of life, um, and I, th- I think yes, that is definitely a theme that, that people that people on the pro-energy side need to need to learn how to talk about, and uh, I think I think you're the you're the foremost you're the foremost teacher um, of, 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 of this way of, 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 having a conversation about energy. And so I think you're right. That's absolutely the case. Um, this sort of moral, this moral high ground, um, viewpoint that you're taking has to, um, has to be more widely disseminated. And, and I hope I can, I, I can play some small part in helping you with that. Um, of course, you know the, the 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 argument that this is dirty dirty energy, or you know the the Canadian Canadian tar sands oil is, as you know, uh, it's falsified in also by the law of unintended consequences because if we if. See, the environmentalists would like to pretend that if we just stop the oil from coming from Canada here, it will take us a step closer to that nirvana that they imagine of a world without fossil fuels where everything runs on sunlight and wind. But it, it won't. All it means is that the oil that won't be, won't be shipped here by, by economically efficient pipelines will be transported uh, to Asia by less efficient means, namely tankers, and uh, and then in, the oil that we won't be able to import from uh, from Canada will have to be rerouted to us from the Middle East instead of the being sent to China from the Middle East. And what it what that all adds up to is a net increase in greenhouse gas emissions. If that's what uh, people or environmentalists are concerned about uh, because it's a shorter distance from the Middle East to China than it is from the Middle East to the United States. And it's certainly a shorter distance from Canada to the United States than it is Canada to China. And so there was a <coughs> um, a study by, um, I think it was called by BART. I think that's the name of the, the, the group, but they called it the the crude oil shuffle, and they looked at what would what would be the effects of a of a clean fuel standard that basically kept Canadian oil, Canadian tar sands oil out of the U.S. market. And it turns out a significant increase in greenhouse gas emissions versus a scenario in which the oil is allowed to come north to south uh, down down the pipeline. So, um, I, you know, t- to the extent that there are reasonable people in the environmental movement, it. It would also be worth pointing out an unintended consequence like this. I also think you're, you're absolutely right that, you know, debacles like Solyndra have, uh, have uh, removed some of the hype attached to the so-called clean energy investments. You know, I thought it was uh, very significant that uh, right after <laughs> Solyndra declared bankruptcy and, and shuttered its doors, Obama gave a major policy speech, you know, and he, about the economy, right? And in every previous speech of this sort, including State of the Union messages, he would have talked about clean energy jobs and how those were the future of our, of our uh, recovery, of our economy and the key to the recovery. And he, he had so much egg on his face over Solyndra that he didn't even mention energy let alone clean energy once in this major address. So that's a hopeful sign too.
1: Yeah, it's all these I find interesting just all these issues about you note know, how what ways are effective of pointing out certain things to environmentalists because it's such a it's such a skewed perspective to completely undervalue all of what hydrocarbons do for human life. To imagine these alternatives that you refuse to have compete on a free market, to call for government central planning as the means of achieving this fantasy, despite its its track record and its the fundamental immorality of telling everyone in an economy what to do and interfering with their lives. I mean, once someone is in that perspective, it seems as if, yeah, you can tell them, well, actually, your plan wouldn't quite accomplish what you said, what you would like, because it's more expensive this route than that route. Uh, but... I mean, the way I feel like coming at it is just: your plan is wrong, your approach is wrong. This is right. It's it's clean energy, if it means anything, is energy that makes life better and cleaner, and that means cheap, practical, reliable energy, and not imaginary energy. Uh, so it's it's just. I mean, the, if you think about how clean <clears throat> the world we live in is, I, I don't need to tell you, but. How clean the world we live in is as a practical matter compared to what it's been at any point in history. It's completely staggering. And that's because energy is, um, and is a cleansing tool as well as a tool of everything else. It's, it's just the other side is so deeply wrong on this issue. And, and uh, for whatever it's worth from my perspective, it's, it's important to, for us to always, uh, remember that. And that that's, I, in my experience, more powerful than, than kind of trying to, Trying to tell them that they're not, that they don't know, they don't know their position as well as we do. Okay, with that, Marlo, we have to wrap up. Thank you so much for being on Power Hour.
0: Well, thank you, Alex, and thank you for your leadership in the conversation on energy issues. Power Hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein.
1: Thanks again to Marlo Lewis for joining us on the program. I want to talk a little bit about the issue that came up toward the end, which I would put under the category of what approach should the free market energy movement, or more broadly the free market industry movement, take toward activism. And uh, Marlo is very generous in terms of uh, praising some of the approaches that I, and more broadly CIP, Center for Industrial Progress, uh, are taking on this issue. And I I just want to elaborate on a couple of points and why I think it's so essential to take a positive, idealistic uh, approach to these issues. And I'll give you a little bit of the background on my thinking on this. Uh, I've been writing about environmental and industrial issues for over a decade now. And for most of that decade, my approach was essentially to argue against the green movement. So I would painstakingly explain how green doesn't really mean anti-pollution, it means anti-development. And that is a really true and important point, but I noticed that it was hard to make it stick, and it was certainly hard to generate much enthusiasm, even among those who agreed. So there was something missing, and I didn't feel like it was just that I needed to make that point better, it's that there was something else. And then a couple years ago, I had kind of an interesting observation, which Really changed the way I started thinking about these issues, and it, it came up when I was going around the country lecturing about oil. When I gave a bunch of different versions about the same talk, which was about essentially how we should liberate rather than control the oil industry. Now, in various versions of the talk, I would devote a substantial portion of it to explaining how amazingly positive a role oil played in our lives. Uh, for example, I'd explain the issue of what's called petroleum products, and that is that. The oil industry takes this glop, you know, this crude black oil, the kind of stuff we saw in all the Deepwater Horizon footage, which is by itself um, pretty much useless, and it takes the hydrogen carbon molecules in that crude oil, breaks them down, and then assembles them into an astonishingly wide array of petroleum products. And when I would talk about this, I'd just, whatever room I was in, I would point to basically anything in the room, and it would turn out it would be made- Of oil. So the insulation in the walls in the room was oil. In one form, the plastics in the room, including all the electronics, was oil. All the rubber in the room was almost certainly synthetic, uh, derived from oil. The makeup on their faces, the glasses or contacts on their eyes, the paint on the walls. And I could give dozens and dozens of examples, and you get the sense of, wow, everything is made of oil. And on top of that, I would stress, It's not. This is not just some accident or something that can just be changed um, on a dime. The reason we use oil for these things is because no one has figured out a better or cheaper way of creating these things. So if we tried to do it without oil and without the oil industry, we either couldn't do it or it would be a lot more expensive and we couldn't afford all of these things. And when I would get feedback after the lecture, I would hear over and over and over that this was the favorite section of the talk, which surprised me a little bit because there were a lot of other sections of the talk I thought to me were, in a sense, more interesting or at least more more novel. And then but I realized why it was so appealing. And that is that people are only interested in petroleum policy or industrial policy to the extent they see petroleum and industry as amazing positive, amazingly positive things. So let's look at, on the flip side, look at people's enthusiasm for the green movement. People have a lot of enthusiasm, or at the very least sympathy for green policies, because whatever the flaws in those policies that you can point out, and there are many, that movement focuses on issues that people know are important and and have aspirations about, such as pollution and resource availability. And that movement takes the moral high ground by claiming to be defending us against pollution and the loss of our resources. And in doing so, it harnesses the greatest power on earth, and that is the power of moral idealism. Now, there's absolutely no reason that our side can't do the same thing. And in fact, no reason it can't do it much better because it can do it more honestly. In, in fact, being pro-energy, being pro-free market and energy, being pro-property rights and industrial progress, that will lead to a much, much, much better and more desirable world. So what we need to do is we need to offer a new ideal, one that takes a positive, inspiring stand on all the relevant industrial and environmental issues. And that's key. We need to own the issues that the Greens own that are legitimate issues, such as uh, such as pollution. Um, and that is what the ideal of industrial progress does. Industrial progress is the improvement of the human environment under a system of property rights, and. By taking that focus, we integrate the freedom to engage in rapid industrial development with the freedom from pollution, with the freedom to enjoy and preserve the most beautiful parts of nature. So It's the best of all worlds. We own all the legitimate issues. and When we offer an ideal, we set the terms of the debate. This is especially important with environmental issues, where the other side is constantly blending anti-pollution and anti-development, pretending they're the same thing, getting people mixed up getting them to support anti-development and thinking they're supporting anti-pollution, etc. But if we offer an ideal that is pro-development and anti-pollution, the only way they can oppose us is by being openly anti-development. They have to openly say, for example, that we have no right to drill for new Alaskan oil, not because of any real pollution concerns, but because it might, say, alter the walking patterns of the caribou. And I think that's a losing argument. Now, by contrast, if we go negative, if we focus our efforts on arguing against environmentalism without offering a clear, defined, illustrated, inspiring alternative, then our best-case scenario is to get to zero, people rejecting environmentalism. But where do they go from there? We want to get them to 100, or as close as we can, embracing industrial progress. And that's what we'll be working on and refining and testing and developing this year at the Center for Industrial Progress. We've got a book in progress, a blog, a blog writer training, and some other stuff that I'm keeping secret for now, but we'll talk about soon in the um, Inside CIP newsletter, which you can all sign up by just emailing me at alex at alexepstein.com and with the subject, subscribe. This is actually different than my other newsletter, Life, Liberty, the Pursuit of Energy, so make sure that you're signed up uh, for both. And more broadly, make sure you're at industrialprogress.net pretty frequently and on our fa- various Facebook and Twitter pages because we've got new, you know, new things coming out almost every day. And with that, it's time to wrap up the show. I hope you learned something, and if you did and think it's important information, tell your friends and colleagues about it whatever way you can. Facebook, Twitter, email, phone calls, smoke signals, anything short of spam. As always, if you have any questions, comments, hate mail, or love mail, you can send it to Alex at alexepstein.com. To subscribe to this podcast and to subscribe to my monthly newsletter. Go to facebook.com/slash/the pursuit of energy, which has all the links you need. That's facebook.com/slash/the pursuit of energy. Um, the page keeps growing. Share with your friends, and that's all we have for now. So uh, join us next month. New Power Hour, new guest, new interesting topic. And until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This
0: has been Power Hour.